Hello and welcome to the Primal MMA Coaching Podcast, an exploration of the training and development within mixed martial arts. My name is Scott Siverite, and together with my guests, we will discuss how the science of coaching, ecological psychology, and skill acquisition can help us design practice more effectively. No matter what your martial art goals are, surely we all want to be better. So, let's try to be better at getting better. Okay, well, today I am talking with Coach James DeLacy. Coach James is the founder of Sweet Science of Fighting, which is an educational platform that explores the research and science that informs strength and conditioning methodologies for combat sport athletes. James is a competitive grappler. He holds a master's in sports and exercise science and is also a published academic researcher. Now, in more recent months on his Sweet Science of Fighting YouTube channel, James has been critically evaluating some of the strength and conditioning workouts and routines of high-level fighters across combat sports. This, of course, has left him open to all kinds of uh, ridicule and pushback from industry gatekeepers and fellow coaches. But he won't be getting too much pushback from me today, and that's largely because I'm just not that well-informed when it comes to all things strength and conditioning. And also because this is not my first conversation with James, we've had several back and forths and it's quite apparent to me that what he communicates and information he puts out there, it's very important to him that it is accurate. Now, during this conversation, my lack of understanding about strength and conditioning uh, becomes a little bit more apparent. In fact, it seems I've been carrying around a few uh, misconceptions about strength and conditioning based on some lingering conventional wisdom. So for me, at least the conversation was valuable, not only just to correct some of my existing beliefs, but also as a reminder not to be too sure about what I believe when it's a space that I'm not particularly well informed in. Lastly, this interview is a couple of months old and I'm just getting around to uploading it. I have a couple more left to do. So if you're listening, Coach Rob Cole, I will definitely be getting around to that soon. Okay, without further ado, my conversation with Coach James DeLacy. All right. Listener or listeners, please welcome fellow podcaster of Sweet Science of Fighting, growing YouTube sensation, Mr. James Delacy. <laughs> Delacy, excuse me. I fucked yes. that up. You know what? I'm going to redo that. All right. Until we'll get out of the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I tried to, I, I tried to uh, spitball and I'd live there and it never went well. Okay. Listener or listeners, please welcome my fellow podcasting guest, James DeLacy of Sweet Science of Fighting Podcast. James, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Scott. How are you? I'm good. I had to record, re-record that uh, introduction there because I really <laughs> fucked the first one up. Anyway, we are there now. James, we put this together really quickly. I came across a couple of your videos today. I see you're doing a new kind of theme or you've got a new selection of videos coming out where you are critically... Uh, evaluating some of the mm. strength and conditioning of uh, UFC fighters from the promos and the countdowns that we see. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your podcast, and a little bit, bit about your latest endeavors? Oh, damn. Okay. Let, let's see. I'll, I'll try to keep it short enough so it's not a huge bloody life story. But came came up as a strength and conditioning coach through professional rugby and rugby league. Worked various professional teams in international rugby with that, kind of where I cut my teeth as a full-time strength and conditioning coach. Graduated with my master's in sport and exercise science back in the day too. And then I think like everyone that gets into combat sports, at least in the strength and conditioning side, comes from a a love of the sport and realizing that it's 
under underserved market in terms of what fighters are receiving in terms of strength conditioning information so that's why i guess the space is growing so quickly too in terms of strength and conditioning so jumped in because i've been doing jiu-jitsu since 2014 kind of when i first started still still shit at it obviously with work and stuff having to travel you don't get to train all the time so now hopefully we get to train a bit more but Outside of that, I have SweetScienceOfFighting.com, which is just geared towards strength conditioning for combat athletes. And that involves the podcast, as you mentioned, have a membership with all the training programs. Actually, got a couple of professional MMA fighters doing that currently or in there currently, as well as a bunch of other amateur guys and recreational, I guess you could say, fighters. And then obviously, as you mentioned, with the YouTube side, it's just me giving as much free information as possible around that. So that's to do with anything strength training related, conditioning related. Right now, as you mentioned, I'm doing some, some, I guess, reaction videos because, you know, hey, people actually click on that shit. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, exercise scientists reacts or critiques XYZ fighters, strength conditioning training, and then just have a comment full of hates about me saying, you know, why is this person doing burpees or why does he need to hire David Goggins to do a strength and conditioning? And then, you know, it goes from there. Oh, we'll get around to that. We'll get around to that. Well, that's great. Well, congratulations on the recent success. Now. I spoke to you before I came on. Most of the episodes I've done now, I'm starting to get a little bored myself. It's just kind of regurgitating what we're doing here, ecological mm-hmm. dynamics and, and, and how we practice and design practice and how it pertains to skill. However, uh, as I was talking to you before we got on here, I have been very guilty here of prioritizing skill development and maybe neglecting the uh, action capacity side or the conditioning side of things. Now, it's not to say I, I didn't didn't value it, but it wasn't my in my wheelhouse at all. And I was kind of putting out the onus on my fight team to kind of maybe do that on the side or find someone that could help them do that. Because I didn't yeah. know what, where to start. It's it's important to me that I don't bullshit. I'm, I'm sure I bullshit them, you know, unintentionally, but it's important my fighters that I don't bullshit them. So I'm not going to be the strength and conditioning guy. What I'm trying to be is the ecological skills guy. So this is why I'm looking forward to this conversation. I have I have a few specific questions for you? But yeah. before we get down to that, I am interested in 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 the burpee. Let's uh, get that one out of the way. Burpee, the pros and cons, or <laughs> mention it. It was good for maybe general fitness, but probably not ideal for maybe fighters. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. For general, that fitness, seems sure. that seems ubiquitous, right? The burpee in most yeah, people love it. Routines. Yeah. People love it. But you know, when we're talking about exercise selection, you're kind of looking at you know, what are the adaptations you want to achieve out of it? Sure, get your heart rate up, becomes a cardiovascular conditioning exercise. I mean, you can use it. There's, there's no problem in that regard, but many people will talk about, hey, you know, I mean, one of the comments I just got today about how it helps the boxer because he's always moving his legs and it's power development, et cetera. But, you know, you're doing the exact opposite in a burpee because power development needs to be expressed um, maximally with as much rest as possible between reps, sets, et cetera. Because as soon as you start getting into the submaximal zone of continuous, for example, jumping, you're not developing that quality anymore. It just becomes lazy submaximal effort. So that's one of the main issues. And then obviously burpees as well. Like if anyone's done hybrid burpees before, you understand that I wouldn't not, not like a huge risk, but the impacts it can do on your hands and wrist when you're getting down to those positions. Because people don't just get into like a push-up position for the burpee. They like drop onto their hands. And that's just something to be to be aware of with, with burpees as well. So it's just one of those exercises that that people think is the be-all, end-all for something, but there is no exercise that is the be-all, end-all for any sport or athletic development. It's just the different tools for different purposes. So you can't say something is the best for X, Y, Z when there are other alternatives that are likely better than that one. 
Okay. And as you go ahead here, please forgive me. I have a habit of tag, uh, tacking questions onto original questions, but um, it might be useful just to do a quick uh, one-on-one or uh, recap here of the different energy systems required in fighting. Yeah. And my question to tack upon on that is, it, would it be correct in saying that it's sometimes if you're focusing on one, you're taking away from another? And that's the, that's the fine balance in tuning that a strength and conditioning coach yeah. needs to manage, right? Could you talk a little bit about uh, these 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 systems, how they work, and how they pertain to fighting? Yeah, it's it can be. I, I think when most people get stuck is this idea of there's three main energy systems, right? You have your your aerobic energy system, you have your anaerobic glycolytic or anaerobic lactic, and then you have your alactic, which is also part of the anaerobic little system. But those are the main three. But people see them as as isolated energy systems, or you can attack them in isolation. But the truth is they all work together all the damn time. So you can do things to prioritize certain energy systems, but they're all always working. So nothing's ever purely aerobic energy system developed. Nothing's ever purely alactic, as an example. You always get a thread of all three. You just might have a little more emphasis on one or the other to provide the energy for that certain conditioning or exercise and it's always dictated by intensity intensity is what dictates where the fuel comes from and which energy systems are providing most of that fuel and obviously as i think most people know from common sense you know the longer you're going to do an activity the less intense it's going to be because you can't sustain you know 100 percent for 10 minutes as an example so that becomes as you get to longer duration so people will be familiar with road work etc you know 30 to 60 minute uh, runs they'll be more on your low intensity spectrum you'll be emphasizing more of that aerobic energy system development and then obviously you have your very high-end sprint training typically with a lot of rest, but obviously it depends where you are within your training. And that'll be more of your alactic side. And then when you get into the middle, you're kind of looking at anywhere from like 10 to even up to like 60 seconds of maximal or near maximal intensity work. And then depending again, you know, short or long rest within that. So you have a whole spectrum of things you can manipulate through those energy systems. But that's just that's just like one way of looking at it too. You can look at an energy system approach to developing conditioning for a fighter, which you might use, in, in my opinion, you might use a little further away from a fight. And then as you get closer, say, to a fight, you can look more of at a work capacity model. Now, it's not to say these are exclusive and these are the only times you can use this type of things. It's just an easy way to kind of frame it and illustrate it in your head. So you can kind of look at these different energy system, I guess, dedicated training sessions, and you can look at basic work capacity stuff. So I think an easy way of doing it is kind of like repeat power. So can you maintain a certain effort at a certain intensity over and over again? And people have been doing this, you know, for years without even thinking about it. You know, can you can you do five sets of, I don't know, rowing a certain distance and then the next session you do six sets? Hey, I at the same intensity, you know, that means you got ideally better at performing that intense task repeatedly and these are just simple things you can do potentially down the line you can if you wanted you can replicate your five minute rounds or three minute rounds or whatever people are doing if you wanted to in that area too so there's different ways of looking at it but it's just making sure that you know people don't go into it and be like okay i have to isolate this energy system or isolate this thing there are other adaptations you can look at outside of that so typically we're looking at uh, central adaptations, which is at the heart uh, level, and then obviously peripheral adaptations, which is at the muscular level. And 
typically you're looking at higher intensity activity or conditioning touching more on the muscular side so the easiest way to just think of like muscular endurance as a catch-all term for that and then lower intensity stuff typically you're looking at more of the central or the heart adaptations side so at the heart you're looking at pumping more blood per heartbeat so you're delivering more oxygen through the blood then on the peripheral or muscle endurance side you're looking at the muscles being able to use that oxygen more readily so you've kind of got like two sides of it that you're looking to attack and then obviously the low and high intensity typically covers each side of that but obviously there's some overlap and there's some other caveats involved with that but that that should cover most most of your question i think no it does i, I took some notes here now we spoke about the the burpee we also made a video somewhat critiquing the running because that's also ubiquitous in most fighters mm. it has been forever right talk to me a bit about running and how perhaps if i'm getting this right you think there's maybe better ways to do it yeah it's, it's more so the fact that people will say running is the you have to run to be quote-unquote fit to be a fighter and it doesn't even matter what combat sport it seems to be ubiquitous with you know not just boxing but it goes into you know mma even grappling wrestling etc but you you don't have to run to be quote-unquote fit for your sport running is just a mode of exercise you may choose there are other things you can do you know if you wanted to do some other non-specific conditioning you might you know, row machine, bike, versa climber. You can go into more specific style drills, especially if you're not doing your combat sport as much as you could. So, you know, people that might be working full-time jobs, only getting to training three, four times a week, you know, is your time better served running three times a week in the morning? Or would you be better served maybe doing shadow boxing, shadow wrestling partner drills for your conditioning, still getting the same outcome or potentially a better outcome because you're actually uh, drilling the techniques in these different or reinforcing the techniques, visualizing what's happening in front of you, but still getting a similar cardiovascular response. Plus, you do it in a way that is quote-unquote specific to the sport. We know that the muscles adapt to the movements that are being done. So typically, if you're only doing, let's just take a really crude example. A really crude example is I'm sure people who have done any kind of endurance activity, let's just say someone's to train to run a marathon and you do all your training swimming, the transfer from the swimming to the running is very poor. And I think many people have probably done something like that before and tried to tack on something that has nothing to do with whatever the activity is and done something else and found that, wow, they got fitter in this one activity, but it didn't quite transfer over. That's why I feel some of the specific conditioning stuff works well because you're using the muscles in the same way that you would within the combat sport itself. So it tends to transfer better. Now, that's not to say that's all you do and you have to always do it that way. But it just gives you some more options too. So, you know, you can run. There's nothing wrong with going for running, but it's just not the thing that's going to make you the fittest on earth. And if you don't do it, your conditioning is going to suffer, which many people do say. Okay. Well, that, that answers it nicely. So we're not saying there's no value in it. We're just saying that there might be, you might spend your time a little better elsewhere. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that specificity thing's interesting to me because, and again, this is purely observation and anecdotal. I can see boxers come in, they'll be breathing out their asshole in one minute after grappling, but they can do yeah. it round after round of boxing and vice versa. Sure. Okay, you're going to get a grappler, so you're going to gas quickly at kickboxing. So, do you have anything to add to that? Is there a certain level of proficiency you need to get a, a certain activity? So, perhaps all these muscle synergies and whatnot are, are up and running. They're kind of they're kind of baked in. So. If that made sense at all, when it, when we're doing some new movements, I understand it's probably a lot more taxing. So, yeah. but again, it comes back to this 
this question, um, how specific do we need to be? In terms of specificity, I think it depends, again, on how much someone is actually training their combat sport, what level they're at. Like, if you look at some of the top guys who are potentially training once, twice a day, maybe every day in their combat sport, if you're adding more specific conditioning on top, is it really worth doing? Probably not. It's probably worth giving them some time outside of the gym to work on that conditioning. There's obviously a trade-off as well, right, within more specific conditioning modalities, a trade-off between how targeted you can be with the intensities you're using versus, say, an off-feet cardio equipment, right? Because you can you can sit on a bike and hit the same cadence for 30 minutes and kind of have a level heart rate throughout if you wanted. But if you're doing something like, I don't know, shadow boxing, shadow wrestling, whatever, a little more intermittent, you know, you speed up a little bit or you hit the bag or whatever it is a little harder, the heart rate spikes and you've got to bring it back down, et cetera. So there's obviously a trade-off with that. There's also a trade-off in if you're going for higher intensity activity. So if you're doing hard sprints say on a bike you can really push to the point of i guess like just absolute balls out dead after your first round whereas Mm -hmm. if you're doing maximal specific conditioning for example suplex throws heavy bag combinations etc yeah you can push but you can't push to the same extent uh, as you could say on off-feed cardio equipment plus you may have some technical considerations you don't want to play around with for example getting really sloppy on certain techniques you know, there's something to be aware of too. So yeah, it's it's more of a an art regarding the specificity side and maybe understanding, you know, what level you're at and you know if if you're training enough already in terms of technical training that you don't mm-hmm. need any more. Yeah, that it's again that's interesting because ideally I just want to have my guys and girls on the mats all the time doing the sport. Yeah, and if we could do that in a way that teases out these and increases these action capacities, but I'm starting to feel that's either I'm not either I'm not approaching that problem correctly, or we're going to need to do a little bit on the outside. And a, a quick question: This sorry, James, this is how my brain works. No, you're good. Uh, when we speak like like specificity, and we'll get into agility and stuff here soon. But do you think the assault bike would transfer to the roar and vice versa, or? Uh, because there's this, uh, but before, while you're having to think about yep. it, there's this intuition. I remember listening to, I think it was a podcast on Coach Your Brains Out. It was Dr. Carl McGowan from Brigham Young University. He was like one of the daddies of motor learning. And he was mm-hmm. talking about all these uh, balance, balance tested done in, in a lab. They said there was something like a stableometer and a Bachman's ladder. Now, uh, just the stableometer is kind of like, it's almost like that kind of uh, seesaw thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the you know you see people standing on kind of the skateboard with the pipe in the middle yeah. they're just trying to balance yeah. and other ones a ladder so you're seeing how far you can get up a a, a ladder without it falling mm-hmm. this kind of thing yeah. kind of, and he said practicing and becoming very proficient at balancing on one had virtually zero transfer to the other one mm-hmm. which is fascinating right and it, and, it, and that was some of the earlier work to say hey listen uh, balance agility these things they're very very sports specific so I gave you a little yes. bit of time to think of that is there transfer between bike and roar? I don't know if there'll be there'll be general transfer, of course, as you develop some of those central and peripheral adaptations in terms of the actual movement. It probably wouldn't take long to pick up. But I mean, even if you take that further, is the transfer from bike rower to MMA, grappling, or anything like that? Yes, you'll have some of that general carryover. But you're gonna you're gonna put that as into use within your training when you're doing positional sparring, positional rounds, live sparring, et cetera, et cetera. Those general capacities that you're building off the mats, you're going to bring onto the mats anyway as you start to do your movements. So mm-hmm. not, not everything has to have some kind of like direct 
transfer to exactly what you're doing. Sometimes off the mat, you're kind of just building the engine and then letting the engine run on the mat so you can do whatever it is you're doing. And then it kind of all blends meshes together. Yeah. And I think like we kind of mentioned earlier, depending on the stage of the athlete, maybe the best bang for the buck is going to be on the mats, getting these kind of muscle yeah. synergies, getting these movement patterns down. And then as you progress and become, you know, you're, you're getting less, there's a diminishing return perhaps on your, on your skill work. And that's the time to maybe ramp up on the strength and conditioning. Yeah. For, something there. For sure. I still think strength conditioning should always be part of the training program, regardless of the level of the athlete. Cause like my philosophy around strength conditioning is you always want to touch on the physical qualities you need all year round, regardless. You just have different emphasis and different priorities in your training program, I guess, as you go through your months and as you develop. Now, in the beginning, you're going to spend obviously as much time on the mats as possible. There's obviously, as you know, from various ecological approaches, there's movement efficiency around all of that. So as you mentioned, you know, if you're brand new to a movement, it's going to be much more taxing on you than once you become more proficient at it. And then on top of that, what, while you're learning and doing these things, then you can add a little bit of, you could say, conditioning and obviously your strength training around speed, power, development, some kind of you know, hypertrophy training if you need some mm -hmm. size, et cetera. So all that stuff will be in there. You just have different, I guess, emphasis throughout the year, depending on you know what your goals are, where you are, et cetera. Sure, sure. Yes. Now... Uh, be gentle with me here because again i know just enough to be dangerous i remember reading back <laughs> in school i was doing some reading on the delayed training effect tell me if this is if i'm even close to being right here so there were the, my from my recollection that if you periodize your training between say anaerobic strength speed and whatnot there is a way to kind of put that in blocks where you should peak towards a fight day have you got a, 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 am i scratching on someone here or is this is antiquated science yeah, that, what do you think that, that sounds like that's potentially block periodization you're talking about there. So, Vladimir, let, sure let, let me just let me just give you again my recollection. So, they were yep. saying something like if, if if you lift heavy or you or you're doing a lifting thing, that strength will actually won't won't diminish up until a month mm. later. You could be just as strong a month later, and then I, I forget what it was. The anaerobic was was a little bit yeah. short, and the last thing was speed. So they were making a case for plyos should plyometric and speed work should come like just a week or so out because that that was the quickest to quickest to kind of decay but that, that that was my recollection yes to what you're saying but also no so okay. yes to keeping speed plyometric stuff all the way through especially prioritizing near the end in terms of what you're talking about there it's called the residual training effect again from vladimir Ashurin from block periodization i'll touch on that one first actually broke down that whole table if anyone's interested swingsartsoffighting.com forward slash d training that I'll should be it so yeah so so, so that whole table by Assurin doesn't have any scientific backing, which is interesting. So that's been that's kind of like been seen as the gold standard of hey, this is we develop these qualities. This is how long they last on on average. So this is how we base our training. But if you actually go back and see where the information was brought was gathered from, it was like an old German paper in like the seventies, which also didn't reference anything. It was just kind of like this is what the person thinks. And then when you look at the actual research now in terms of changes or changes in aerobic anaerobic strength power etc from d training it happens relatively quickly like on that table you see aerobic endurance takes around 30 days plus or minus five days to start to drop but when you look at the research you see you know anywhere from five to 14 days you can see it start to diminish relatively quickly and it depends on how well trained the athlete is etc etc but the article details a lot of different stuff and a lot of different research 
surrounding that table. But I think some of that, some of that stuff still stands practically, as you mentioned with the speed and power. In terms of the whole block, I'll jump into that in a second. But in terms of the block periodization as well, I know there's a, a few coaches that like the block periodization, periodization approach. I don't. I've never used it uh, with any of the athletes or teams that I've coached throughout the years, and that's uh, regardless of picking for one thing or having you know matches or something every single week or every couple of weeks. And the main reason is, as I mentioned before, my philosophy revolves around touching on everything all the time, regardless of where you are in the year. And that's so you don't get too far away from the qualities that you need to have for the sport. So combat sports, as an example, even with rugby, they're mixed sports. They require everything you can think of, you know, speed, power, strength, conditioning, et cetera. When you just remove one, you then have to come and bring it back later on. So for example, say I do a speed block and then I go into eight weeks of speed, let's just say eight weeks of strength and then eight weeks of hypertrophy. By the time I'm in week four of hypertrophy, I haven't done any speed power work in 20 odd weeks as an example, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to somehow bring it back to peak for whatever it is. I can't just go into and start doing intense jumps, et cetera. I got to start and build them back up again. On top of that, if you're just doing like blocked workouts, there's this idea of like phase potentiation where you would go from like a hypertrophy block. Okay, then that sets you up for the strength block because you're now stronger because you've built more muscle. And then, oh, I'm stronger, so that sets me up to be more powerful in my power block. There's a case to be made that, you know, all, all exercise and everything you do affects everything, which it does. So, for example, if I'm doing a power block and I'm doing loaded jump squats, you know, that's still going to retain or potentially make me stronger. It's still a strength stimulus, right? Uh, you're still not getting some of that maximal strength stimulus and some of the other strength stimulus that you may want in that block. So I prefer to have, for example, a training week or training day might go from, a simple way of doing a training day would go from like fast movements down to slower movements as an example for someone who's maybe starting out. So you might look at your general warm-up, et cetera. Then you might look at doing some jumps, plyometrics, and the throws. You might do some kind of loaded power movement. Could be Olympic weightlifting, could be loaded jumps, whatever. And then you might go into, say, your heavy uh, maximal strength work. It could be you know squat, bench, whatever it is. And then after that, if you need it, you might do some bodybuilding-style hypertrophy stuff if you need that, or you might look at doing some of the, I don't know, people's nice shoulder things and whatever else they do to finish out the session. And that's just a simple way of creating a session where you touch on everything you need within that strength training, but you're not leaving things out for months down the line. Now, how you would, how much work you would do, you wouldn't do always do an even amount of work for each one. You're not going to do four sets of jumps, throws, and plyometrics, then four sets of heavier stuff, then four sets of maximal strength stuff, et cetera. You know, if you're depending on what you need to work on, there's ways you can kind of test for that too. But, you know, further up for a fight, you might do, less of the beginning stuff so you might even do two or three sets of the jump plyometric stuff and then you might be doing more sets of the maximal strength stuff as an example and that way you're not just trying to do everything at once in maximal amounts you're kind of just prioritizing what you need there i think i might have strayed from the original question there uh, no, you didn't. I, you didn't actually. And, and thank you for reminding me that I, I know just enough to be dangerous. I've been carrying that thought around in my head for about, <laughs> but, about 10 years. So it's interesting. It's common. Oh, it's common. The stuff, st- some stuff that sticks, right? And perhaps wasn't maybe as hmm. robust uh, as far as the research goes. So yeah, that that's interesting to me. Uh, so uh, 
to, to add on to that then, obviously no one time weeks better than none, two is better than one. Is there diminishing returns in terms of frequency? How do you balance that out between yeah. fighters? Because this is probably why I've 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 probably got myself to this position where because I haven't prioritized it, I've maybe my team hasn't maybe prioritized it themselves because it hasn't been coming from me. Because I've always said I want your strength and conditioning to be a supplement, not a substitute. Because yeah. I always wanted the the, the the main bulk of the work to be done on the mats, developing skills. Do you see a balance there? I, I know that's a broad question and a general yeah. question, but where 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 would I be looking for for this kind of frequency per week? So for me, generally anywhere from one to maximum three times a week of strength training would be okay. right. And I I would typically more towards the the twice a week, especially with an MMA for grapplers. I think you can go up to three, but it again, it depends how much you're training on the mats, etc. And it, like if you just look over like a little like a anecdotal spectrum of kind of striking arts tend to be more speed-based mma is kind of in the middle grappling arts tend to be more strength-based so grappling side you can spend a bit more time in there striking and the mma side you know, might be more one to two obviously again depending on the schedule the conditioning itself that can be literally done after training sessions or potentially straight after the gym and it's it's more about fitting it into a schedule versus what is optimal in that regard because for example you know, some people uh, maybe don't like to do hard conditioning after sparring. Some people do. Some people like to plan everything kind of around those days in terms of, you know, days before and after might be generally light, which is a good idea. Some will say, oh, you shouldn't do your conditioning after strength training because of the interference effect. However, the interference effect isn't as big as we initially thought it was. So that kind of doesn't really matter. And I think it's a good place to do your conditioning especially when you're short on, like MMA guys are training a shit ton. I'm sure a lot of your guys are training a lot too. Like now you're doing your strength training. Now you have to find time to fit another conditioning session in. Plus you have to fit another strength training session at some point and potentially another conditioning session. That's four extra sessions that you're having to fit within a week where guys might be already training six times a week. That becomes near impossible. So kind of lumping it where you, where you can works well. After training for conditioning tends to work best just because you don't want to do hard conditioning, say before technical training, et cetera, unless that's like a random constraint that you wanted to put in there. Sure. Like, yeah, we meant because I, I wanted to reduce the action capacities of my fighters to maybe simulate fighting tired work. Yeah. So you, you, I think you answered my question that I hadn't even asked you. And, but before we get that, this is more for me. What do you define? You talked about strength work. What do you define as, what, how would you characterize conditioning? In terms of, just what would be your deck you using the word conditioning there and i think you know yep. what i mean okay um, yeah like energy like like you mentioned at the beginning like energy system yeah, con development conditioning for fighting yeah so it can it can range so maybe i'll say kind of what fits well after after some of these sessions so typically after strength training sessions what works well when i mentioned earlier which was the alactic work so typically alactic power you can also call it sprint training it's like a billion different terms they'll kind of have their own def definitions but the easiest way to think about it is it's maximal efforts you're looking anywhere from five potentially up to 10 seconds depending on what you're doing and you're looking at like full rest you're talking like two to three minutes of rest so for anyone that has kind of like training adhd or doesn't like to rest a lot it can be torture because you're doing like five to ten second sprints and you're kind of just sitting around you've recovered after 30 seconds wondering what to do but that's the idea you want kind of maximal efforts each time so doing things like that directly after strength training works well because that's your higher intensity stimulus 
your strength your strength training in the gym is typically a high intensity stimulus. You marry those two together on the same day, and that allows you to have that undulating pattern throughout the week of of intensity. Versus doing hard strength training on one day, maybe with some hard kind of technical stuff, and the next day you're doing hard sprints, and then you kind of never get that break. So that works well after those. That's why also various sprint intervals like that work well after sparring days if you need it as an example and then on other days conditioning can be as we mentioned before road work as an example again there are other modalities you can use you can do lower intensity conditioning if you are uh, further away from a fight you'll look at maybe more some of these long duration cardio activities or like long high intensity intervals which are typically like anywhere from two to eight minutes and you're looking at like two to three minutes rest between them and you're doing a few of those and those are typically higher intensity than for example, going for a 30-minute run, but you're getting similar-ish adaptations from that, and it gives you a little bit of interval work too, and it's a lot less mind-numbing for people that hate doing the other stuff. Well, that was really helpful. Here, here's here's why. So, and, and a, a couple of notes I made there. So, ordinarily, at the end of a practice, our MMA team practices are really hard. I don't mean that. We, we don't spar hard, but they're really hard. I try and mm-hmm. push my guys in deep water and, and, and break them physically there. Um, so towards and at the end of class, it, it occurred to me that maybe this wasn't the best time to do some extra conditioning and that. So there was a couple of reasons for that because if we're all going to be together again, I'm always I'm unashamedly I'm, I want skills work, right? I want to do that that kind of yeah. stuff. But at the same time, I, and then I thought, well, there's no point in doing conditioning I ran away because they're all kind of already exhausted. Are you saying there's some wiggle room there that if I can give them a little bit of time to rest after the, the practice and maybe just do some maybe some sets of sprints or something that there's probably going to be a upside to that. There's going to be a compound effect over time that they're getting a little so, extra yeah. bit of condition. So I shouldn't, I, try, I shouldn't it necessarily. Depends, it de- okay. Right. Well, we'll get it depends. Like, it, yeah. I shouldn't necessarily, no, I shouldn't necessarily write that off. No, I don't think so. Because it depends what else you got going in the week, right? Like if you, <clears throat> if they can't fit that any other time of the week, or maybe they have it one other time in the week, the only other time might be that session and that might be the only place where it really fits and makes sense within the training week because if you do that the day before you know are they going to be fresh enough to spar well because obviously the, the technical side is the most important side mm-hmm. of training and i know i sit within your philosophy of you know the technical side and the skill side being the most important part of training and if you can trying to get a lot of the adaptations from training itself but you know it's not always possible sparring is not also not always maximal efforts as well like you can you know even within hard grappling matches or even hard wrestling matches where you're shooting shots and scrambling etc yeah it's tough but maybe for that short period but to really push into those super maximal intensities i know i don't know if you might have listened to andrew usher talk a lot about his boxing research in terms of super maximal sprints i really like the stuff that he's got coming out in terms of essentially performing 10 to 20 second bike sprints with a prog depending on or actually it's 10 to 30 second bike sprints with 10 to i think it's around 30 seconds rest or, or a little more and he's doing you know up to about 10 of those so it's like 10 to 15 minutes of work absolutely brutal like the hardest thing you'll do it's it's balls out to the point where you want to do the first rep and you don't want to do any more like that's how hard you have to go on those and he's seeing huge huge endurance benefits from doing something like that because of the peripheral adaptations you're developing from that. And from his from his research, at least in his professional boxes, he's finding that, okay, these guys are, he's going to say, quote unquote, 
aerobically fit in terms of VO2 max, being able to deliver oxygen, being, I guess it's quote unquote fit. But when you actually see what's happening within the muscle, their muscles aren't recovering between rounds. And this is where this, this training comes into effect where you're improving the ability of the muscles to recover between these high intensity efforts. Now, typically within, uh, I guess you could say repeat effort training, because a lot of that research is done around repeat sprint training in team sports, right? Because the ability to repeat these sprints is seen as a factor for winning games, especially within soccer. And a lot of that research, okay, you know, aerobic energy system development is seen as one of the more important areas to improve the ability to reduce the decline in fatigue from sprint one to like sprint six, as an example. So they'll do, Mm -hmm. typically within these studies, I might do like 20 to 40 meter sprints. They'll rest, I think like 30, around 30 seconds, repeat six times, and they'll just see like a fatigue decrement from those. And they found that the more aerobically fit players typically recover faster between them, uh, which which is true to an extent. But then when you start to add things like grappling, so then you start, it's not just repeat sprints anymore. It's repeated high intensity efforts. And when you look at that research, especially within, there's a couple of papers, I think within rugby and rugby league, we, they start doing these repeat sprint drills, but they add tackles into them. Now it becomes a little more fuzzy. Now it's not just down to this having a strong aerobic energy system through doing long runs, et cetera. Now it comes more down to the ability to be able to repeat power. And it comes down to more of this, We'll just call it muscular endurance, just so it's easy to understand of that. And that's where the, a lot of these bike sprints that Andrew Rush has been talking about lately with some of his research comes into play. You're able to improve that ability to recover between some of these rounds. So he talks about that, you know, you can do these after some of these sessions. You can even do them after your your gym sessions, strength training sessions. They work really well in that aspect because it's, it's damn hard. Like I did them... Uh, I was at a commercial gym on a spin bike and I did them upstairs because that's where the bikes were. I could barely walk down the stairs like five minutes after. So don't do them if you're upstairs in a cardio <laughs> a cardio room. But yeah, they're, they're brutal. So that's something you can you could do, for example, after a sparring thing like that. They've had some rest, had a little bit of like simple sugars or whatever, and then jump straight into something like that. You can bang it out. And the next day is going to be a lighter day anyway or off, you know, off training altogether. Enough time to recover there. That was great. So let me add a little bit, might be again archaic or um, antiquated idea, but is Tabata, what do you think about Tabata and is that kind of Tabata format, is, is that is that beneficial for fighters? Because just when you were talking about these these, these short sprints with the short, mm. short intervals, you know, and really, because that was the whole idea of Tabata, right? And I think I think when Tabata was kind of popular there for a while, they were like, okay, we'll go, we'll have a class and we'll do five or six Tabatas. But that wasn't the yeah. point, right? The, the point yeah. of the Tabata was to beat the fuck out of yourself for, for four minutes and you weren't able to do anything. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Yeah. And what yeah, do you think correct. of Tabatas generally or that kind of protocol? Most of all, well, everyone who does Tabata bastardizes the shit out of it. There's not actually Tabata. So just doing 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off is not Tabata, unfortunately. You know, that kind of, I guess, work to rest ratio can can work it's you know it has some value but it's just not something you can just use all the time like the original tabata study now I mean, that shit was brutal like you're working at a pace essentially you're doing eight 20 seconds on 10 seconds off sprints four times a week the first day was just an easy like light 20 or 30 minute ride you're doing it at intensity 
at a pace I think you can only hold for 50 seconds. So I think it was 50 second pace, which is still damn hard. That's like a hard pace to hold for a lot of those rounds. You're doing it, you know, with 10 seconds rest between and 20 second efforts. And you're basically, the goal is to get to the point where you get to rep eight and you can't do any more. That's like the entire goal of it. I think the second study they did, they had like two participants drop out or not even make the six or seven seventh rep because it was so damn hard. So yeah, so there is some value in that. I think it's it's similar to the sprint intervals, but the sprint intervals typically have more of, I guess you could say a one-to-one, one-to-two work to rest versus a two-to-one. You can obviously manipulate that depending on what you want. But to do true Tabata, like it has to be done on a bike because you can't do the you can't do Tabata doing kettlebell swings, <laughs> which people tend to try to do, or battle ropes. You know, it's the intensity is not there. Like go do 20 seconds of battle ropes or kettlebell swings with 10 seconds rest. And you can probably still do them after eight rounds. It's just, you can't get hit that intensity that you can on a stationary cardio equipment where you can go balls out and not worry about falling over, injuring yourself or whatever it is. So yeah, the, most people aren't doing Tabata, but the original Tabata study, sure, it has some applications. I think at some point though, like you can't just rely on intensity all the time. Sometimes, especially further away from fight, like you've got to have some kind of volume. That's why they call it the aerobic base, right? Having that volume, you respond better to these high intensity modalities when you have some of that volume behind you versus going and say, I don't say you haven't done much else. Do you go straight into something like that? You can blow yourself up pretty quickly. Yeah. So it's, it's just more about, I guess, doing things at the right time. Well, I can relate to that because when we got our roar in earlier this year, I, I did a Tabata and like really went for it. And I, I couldn't fucking walk the length of myself for about a week after. So <laughs> there you go. Right. Well, that was just <laughs> indicative of my, my, my health at the time. Okay. So, and, and where, what are your, what, what would be, what do you do for metrics? Okay. I, I don't want to get caught up in numbers and graphs yeah. because it's just not, it, it's, it's not practical for me and my team. But uh, can you suggest maybe some, some, measurables and metrics you can yeah. use to see the progress yeah there's a few different things you can do that yeah as you mentioned like sometimes you need like a lot of tech and shit and be able to interpret it also becomes a bit of a pain but there's some simple ones you can do like for example as you mentioned on the rower you've got like the 2k cooper test you can look online and kind of see where you rank mm-hmm. you can also do what i like is like a five to six minute time trial or you can do like a 1200 to 1600 meter you can try to choose either way you do that time trial and you take your time in seconds and you take the distance you rode so you take the distance divided by the time in seconds that'll give you a maximal aerobic speed score so typically you know anywhere between like 3.5 to like five meters per second would be your kind of maximal aerobic speed and you can track that over time but you can, you can also use that to prescribe conditioning if you want if you want to do like high intensity like aerobic conditioning intervals on the rower there's one way of doing it so you take Oh, this is going to sound so confusing for listeners. I'm sorry. But basically, you take that number, your meters per second number, your MAS. So let's just say it's four meters per second. You did 1,200 meters in, oh, dude, my math's so bad. Whatever time it is, that gives you four meters per second. And you take that number. Okay, I'm going to do uh, 30 second intervals at 100% of my maximal aerobic speed. So my maximal aerobic speed is four meters per second. That's my 100%. I'm going to do 30 second intervals with 30 seconds rest. And I'm going to do 10 minutes of that or whatever. So 30 seconds multiplied by your four meters per second. Mm-hmm. And then that'll give you the distance to cover in that block. 
which is uh, 120 meters. I think it is. Hopefully I got yeah. that right. Mm-hmm. So 120 meters, and that would be your work block. And then you rest 30 seconds, repeat 10 times for that 10 minutes. You might do a couple of sets of that. And that means it's individualized for every single person in the gym because they all mm-hmm. have their own numbers, et cetera. So that's, that's one way you can do conditioning. It's a little higher intensity than maybe doing some kind of like long high intensity intervals or more steady state stuff. But you can manipulate that. You can go down to like 90% of your maximal aerobic speed. So whatever 90% is of four, you'll take that and you might do longer intervals, two, three, four, five minute intervals at your 90%. So it's a little slower as an example. So that's just one test you can use that's helpful because it's also prescriptive where you can base your conditioning off that. You might do a block for four to six, eight weeks and you can retest yourself. Hey, my maximal aerobic speed went up. So I got quote unquote fitter. And then you can kind of readjust your numbers and do it again, et cetera. That's one thing you can do for conditioning. You can also like make up your own tests too. There's nothing saying that you can't do that. For example, if you have an air bike or roller, you can look like average watts, so power. And you could do like, you could do like repeated 10, 20 second sprints or something with X amount of rest and just standardize it and then just see the power drop off. And you can just kind of like track average power for each thing. And hey, I produce more average power this week than last week, you know? Things like that are just, you don't need to have some kind of really specific test. You could literally just make something up. And as long as you're doing the same thing over and over again, then it fits within whatever you're trying to test, then you're pretty good. So that's two there. Vertical jump's an easy one. You know, that's touch the wall, Uh some chalk or something like that. Some broad jump is another easy one with the measuring tape. Those would be both pretty good proxy measures of lower body power. And then... If you wanted to get really, really fancy, uh, you can use this a is phone. Plenty fancy for me. <laughs> you, go can, ahead. You, you can use a phone app called My Jump Two. They actually have a bunch of other ones that can, that can do bar speed and stuff. But really, really fancy stuff is like uh, you can do jump height from the camera on that, so it can give you a more accurate thing. You can also do reactive strength index tests, uh, which is essentially just testing your ability to rebound off the floor really well so fighters more like amateur boxers who are kind of bouncing around the ring that's uh, rather important for for people like that essentially it's just there's a couple of ways of doing it but a simple way is a drop jump so stepping off a box hitting the ground jumping as high as possible but spending the least amount of time on the ground as possible and that's your reactive strength index and then you can also do force velocity profiles which is something i quite like i did my master's research on that too and that is essentially using the app you're doing jumps over multiple loads so body weight with just about like 20 40 60 kilos four jumps you plot it in the app and it essentially spits you out a force velocity profile that gives you your current one and then your optimal profile to maximize power development and jump height so you go in there and be like okay i i need to be stronger or i need to be faster essentially and then it can kind of help dictate training around there so that's just another thing more kind of a little more advanced but if people are into that that's something they can look at too so these jump metrics are a proxy for general what power uh, force production yeah. from the lower body or the just body yeah. generally yeah just like but mainly from the lower body you can do some upper body tests like if you have a medicine ball like a seated medicine ball chest pass and stuff like that those are all good too but yeah jumps are just easy to do right 
you can kind of do them anywhere and are relatively quick because obviously you don't want to spend hours trying to test something. That's the other issue with testing and having to do it all the time. Whereas a jump, you could literally do every week without wasting too much time. So I, I like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to implement that because, and, and tell me what you think of this before I change it. Cause I can change it now because I, I just brought up this week again. Remember, I'm a safe distance from genius when it comes to <laughs> strength and condition, but I said to the guys, I want you doing once a month each. So on the bike and on the roar, three minutes on, one minute off on the roar for distance, just as, mm-hmm. just as a baseline, get your baseline and then three minutes, one minute off on the bike for three rounds and not uh, different days, of course, for calories. And I, th- mm-hmm. and I thought over time, so I'm getting the kind that it's kind of simulating the uh, a fight length. The three yep. minutes when the morning went off and I, I assume there's going to be some uh, uh, efficiencies in there just by movement that are going to bring the numbers down too, but also there'll be some improvements in, in their conditioning too. So yeah, for sure. For sure. That, I mean, if it's just a reasonable metric, a good way. And I do yeah. like, so it's once every couple of weeks, they have to they do one of them. And I said, this isn't your conditioning. This is just purely uh, exactly. a metric for your conditioning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it just lets you track things over time and you'll probably start to see, you know, because you're on the floor with them all the time, you might see guys who are starting to improve in that. You might start seeing improvements on the mats as well in those fighters. And you go, then you can start deducing or suggesting conclusions from, hey, this, these fighters tend to hit these times or these calories or whatever, or this distance, and they're doing this well. Maybe this should be the benchmark you know, for most people, as an example. You'll start to create kind of your own, I guess, measures for your fighters. Because, yeah, as I mentioned, like you can you can come up with – different kinds of tests doesn't have to be a specific one for whatever just whatever works you know in your environment and works for your guys and makes sense for them right like for them three minute rounds one minute off makes sense for them in their head you know it's it's a fight so it's easier for them to do and to understand and then you just track over time how they're going and before we start rounding off here and well maybe we'll get to we'll, we'll have to we'll have to mention the agility ladders too because yeah. it's my last episode i'm always fighting about agility ladders but <laughs> And I'm dragging it a bit more to the psychological space here. Surely if there's something that a fighter does that they believe in and, and has value to them, can can we can we say then it's it, it probably valuable? I'm always trying yes. to you know, give some wiggle room and stuff. Yes. If I, I've had plenty of athletes that do random shit, and I won't stop them unless it's going to be harmful. I'm with you. Julie, that is flashing lights and shit. They don't do shit. But if an athlete like has to warm up with it all the time, etc. Cool. <laughs> you know, that doesn't bother me at all. But I think where the problem comes is obviously people always talk about how these things are God's gift to agility and combat training and yet they're not. But for an athlete who finds comfort in using something like that, yeah, all good. And reassure me here, agility is not a general skill. It's specific and information driven. Yep, I think you. I think you know that. Know that already teed me up with just, softball on this one. Because <laughs> this is this is this is what everyone's maybe fighting about on these comments. Or well, dude, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand how it's so contentious. It blows my mind. But I mean, for for the listeners, like if you're interested in a paper, Warren Young, I think it's a 2015 paper. I think if you just search Warren Young Agility 2015, it should pop up. It's probably one of the I best. I just started following him today on X. Oh, on yes. Twitter because you you mentioned him. And so yes. I'm, I'm going to reach out to him too. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was lucky enough when back home in New Zealand, when I was doing my master's, we used to have like these, I guess, post-grad meetings and once a month or so. And they'd 
a speaker would come in and just present something. And he was one of them one one time. Warren Young came in to present on agility. It was fucking awesome. And he he ran through all this different stuff. But essentially, there's a difference between agility and change of direction speed. And most people equate agility to change of direction speed. And to think of both, people often call agility reactive agility, but that's kind of redundant because agility has a reactive component. Change of direction speed is just the physical component. So an easy way to look at this is not like cricket. Oh, wait. But they might have a lot of American listeners. I don't know if they know what cricket is, but <laughs> well, you could maybe just say baseball, which is even yeah, more baseball than Sim- similar. So basically, just is ball crushingly boring. <laughs> basically, if you run to a line, turn around, and come back, that would be mm-hmm. like a very crude example of change of direction speed. How quickly can you run to that line, turn around, and come back? That is part of a component of a jersey, but it's not the same. And so he actually correlated change of direction speed with agility. So a Venn, you know, Venn diagram, two circles overlap. I think there's only about 30% overlap, which means they are independent qualities, meaning that mm-hmm. if you improve one, it likely does not improve the other. And then when you dive into the research on agility, you see that they look at elite and sub-elite athletes within a sport. And if you can find something that differentiates an elite from a sub-elite athlete, it typically means that quality is likely important for success in that activity or sport. And you'll find that change of direction speed, you know, often the sub-elite athletes will have similar or even better, I guess, change direction speeds than the elite athletes. But then when you add the reactive component, and this reactive component is not just pointing and they go towards a different color cone or whatever, the reactive thing has to be sports specific. Mm-hmm. So when you add the sports specific element, and in this case, it's like uh, Aussie rules football or rugby, where they'll have a screen and they'll have a player coming and he's going to sidestep a certain direction. And then they have to be able to react to move to that direction. The elite athletes far outperform the sub-elite athletes in that task. And it goes to show that agility uh, is the ability to react to the sports-specific stimulus. And you could even go further and say, like, use the right tool, which comes down to more of the ecological approach of, of training. You know, be able to use the right tool in your toolbox to solve that problem that's happening in front of you. So you have the cognitive side, the physical side. I know you probably want to jump in here, Scott, as well, but just quickly, cognitive side, you know, it's the ability to anticipate, you know, know the situation, understand what's happening in front of you. And then you obviously get the physical side, which is kind of like anthropometry, which you can't really change. But on top of that, you have, you know, strength and power, you have speed, et cetera, et cetera. That helps with that side. So then you kind of marry the two together and that's where you get true agility. Lovely. Well, thanks. Th- thanks for that. And and that that tied in things nicely there because I think we can both then agree then that as far as my perspective now through this this lens is that expertise is really that sensitivity and that attunement to the environmental information. And yeah. that was interesting what you said to me about elite and sub elite. The difference isn't necessarily in their action capacities; it's a, mm. in their ability to uh, read and perceive the environment. Yeah. So 100%. I think that's lovely. Now, I, I was going to finish off with three questions, but I feel that's going to undermine most of the conversation because I was going to say, <laughs> okay, you've, you've got very, very kind of, you, you've got down into weeds a little bit. Give me, give me fucking three things I can, I can, you know, that I can write on a, on, on the back of a napkin and get going with my fighters. But I'm going to give this a little bit more thought. So I'm not going to ask you to be specific and then generalize it all. But I, I really enjoyed talking to you. I, I like the content that you're putting out. If you haven't heard, I appreciate that. Science of, uh, fighting podcast subscribe to it on youtube you'll get constant content pop up james has been doing a lot of 
breakdowns of of high level fighters and um not only just fighters and mma fighters but also you just did one recently on the b team grappling too i know there's a lot yeah, of grapplers that listen to this yeah and so yeah it, it's interesting and as a fellow podcaster i wish you all the best by by trying to make sense of this all and and distribute it around around the web no thank you very much hopefully it wasn't confusing or anything and if anyone has any questions feel free to hit me up sweetsidesoffighting.com and i mean people can find me on instagram or wherever else too so yeah if you have any questions just get in touch yeah and i'll put all your uh, show notes and stuff and that in the link and how people can reach out to you and some some direct links to your your content uh, and Perfect. any big plans for 2024 as as it pertains to sweet science of fighting dude i'm just gonna brute force my way into fucking everyone's eyes and ears basically that's my plan <laughs> Yeah, I, I need to get a bit better at that. But, uh, the imposter syndrome is always strong on me, so but yep. once I get over that, I'll start spamming it. Yeah, dude, you have to. Just ignore them. I get negative comments all the time. I was telling you before this, I've had how many negative comments on my one video today? Just tell them they're dumbasses. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm certainly okay doing that. James, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. And I'm sure this is this is our second conversation. I'm sure we'll have more in the future. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Scott. All right, brother. Thank you very much. Cheers. All right, Jimbo. Nice. That was solid. That went well. Yeah, answered a yeah. lot of my answered a lot of my questions there.